0: Thank you for listening. This is Israel Rebound, a podcast joining listeners around the world to Israel, exploring the ties that bind us through culture, identity, and current events. I'm Alan Potash in California, and I'm joined with my co-host and friend, Liz Felstern in Jerusalem. Liz, um, I don't want to start off on a, on a negative note, but we're at about almost 100 days into this war uh, in Israel and uh, with Hamas. How how are you seeing that unfolding? How do you see the 100 days impacting the country? And what other ways are you experiencing this? I don't want to call it a milestone, but 100 days is really long for any war in Israel.
1: Yeah, yeah. Look, it is is a, a, a marker that, on the one hand, I feel like probably we as an Israeli people didn't need any reminders because we we know when we feel how incredibly long it has been i am um, since october 7th but on the other hand the jewish people is particularly good at finding ways to to remember and to mark time right i mean we can talk about that on a whole lot of religious and cultural levels but but it's definitely true and so there are going to be various things happening around this marking the 100-day point since the beginning of the war. Uh, Obviously, a lot of events around the hostages and the critical need to bring them home after 100 days, um, some mass Prayer gatherings and and different type of events, all connected to that one hundred day. Um, and one of the things that I've started to see, both on a media level and maybe a little bit on an anecdotal sort of person to person level as well, is that you know in the beginning of the war, it was incredibly clear that the main message was. Unity, right? We've talked about that the whole slogan of this war has been Together we will prevail. And that idea of togetherness, of a united front, of that this was not the time to talk about any of our political or religious differences, that we were one Israeli people that would somehow face this and get through this together, was a really important sentiment in the beginning of the war. But there is a question of how long does that last, right? At what point is it legitimate and maybe even necessary to go back to, yes, examining some of our political differences, the same issues that existed before the war still exist now, and how do we need to look at them differently because of the war? Um, uh, Certainly also the questions of... Uh, doing like a real investigation as to how were the events of October 7th allowed to happen, right? Who dropped the ball? What was missed? How, how did we find ourselves in that situation? All those things, I think now is when we're starting to see voices saying this, this is the time to, to reopen those things. We, you know, we can't wait until the war is over, so to speak, because we see that this is going to be a very long war. And it's and it's not reasonable to have these conversations wait much longer. And so this is the time when, when we're going to start to hear more of those voices and the sort of uh, differing views that Israel was probably much more well known for up until three months ago, uh, returning to the To the forefront.
0: So, the resilience of a country uh, has has a lifespan of 100 days. Is that what you're saying?
1: Well, I don't know that I would say the resilience has a lifespan. I would say that that first stage, right, the stage in which, in order to be resilient and in order to take any steps forward, you have to do them in a really united, really you know, solid, without uh, without differences of opinion kind of way because those initial steps take up quite a lot of, you know, that's the heavy lift, that's the out of inertia and getting something moving. But once you're further in, there is bandwidth to be doing all of those things, but also having the, the more difficult conversations
0: and And I think that you know to your point the I use the word resiliency, but I think you talk about the the intimate nature of Israel as a country where prior to October seventh, you had hundreds of thousands of people on a regular basis gathering to challenge the government, and it flipped overnight to now let's support the country and to support each other in this conflict that we have with Hamas, and so a hundred days goes by and that trauma we've talked about in in previous podcasts the country is still not not grieving from october the 7th it's just a perpetual motion of activity to kind of get through the next day
1: um, i think that's true and right at at this point we're going to start to see more and more diversity in terms of how people are dealing with the trauma and dealing with this situation and people that are ready and willing to to go back to engaging in some of the really important conversations and work that needs to happen on the country, both directly related to the war and examining, right, what, what led to the situation that we find ourselves in and what changes do we need to make going forward because of the war, and some of the issues that existed well before that at some point we're going to have to get back to dealing with.
0: I think the other thing that it comes to my mind is the influences outside of Israel on the war, the support that Israel has with the United States and other European countries to resolve this conflict as soon as possible, realizing that it's not going to be resolved as soon as possible because of the complexity of what Hamas has built in Gaza. And now you've got the Houthi rebels in the Red Sea, you know, attacking ships, so you've got Hezbollah in the north. So this is, as well as Syria and, you know, the influence of Iran and and so many different components that make it difficult for Israel to, you know, have a resolution with this conflict.
1: For sure. And I think that that is kind of one of the major deliberations of uh, Israel and the military established right establishment right now is to figure out how do we weigh achieving the goals that we set out to achieve from the beginning and that we Israel as a nation and as a military believes need to happen but knowing that we are on a limited clock right that we can only attempt to achieve those things as long as public opinion and American public opinion in particular holds out and allows us to continue the military efforts, um, and and that's very much a balancing act.
0: Yeah, I think the pressure that President Biden put on Netanyahu and Israel, you know, resolved this by the beginning of the year, because now I've got to, this is President Biden speaking, I've got to now campaign for my re-election, and Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I do that when I have the challenge of Israel on my back. Um, Gallup came out with another poll recently on, on attitudes. Um, I haven't really had a chance to look at it deeply, but Americans are still standing strong with Israel um, and looking at the future. It, I, we will be able to talk, unfortunately, we will talk about this for the future, but I think the part that most uh, of us need to re- be reminded of is that there's still over 130 hostages, Held in Gaza, the war has really destroyed um, Gaza, and you're now starting to see residents of Gaza coming out and, and being critical of Hamas and how they've been treated. So it's a it's a real complex situation that isn't going to be resolved easily um, in the short time, in the short term. I'm sorry, yeah. sorry to put this on you today.
1: That's okay. I am. Do you have any observations or things that you can share about how you're seeing what's happening in Israel playing out in the American consciousness or
0: Uh, or sentiment? I I mean, it's a great segue because I was going to start talking about how that hundred days has impacted Life in America as Jews, and that's the increase of anti-Semitism and the rise of anti-Semitism that we're that we're seeing on a daily basis, both on a personal level and also on a, a society level. You know, if we look at how the uh, situation took place with the presidents of University of Pennsylvania, MIT, at Harvard, and the pressure that they were under for not challenging, well, not admitting to—I would say—their moral courage of. Admitting that they would have to do something if genocide against Jews was language um, on the college was campus called
1: for on the campuses, right? Yeah yeah, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. And we're still seeing municipal uh, resolutions challenging Israel and supporting the Palestinians and Hamas. And again, the other day there was a situation in a high school in New York where they had to cancel or close or shut down the baseball, basketball game because of the rise of anti-Semitic languages that were, or slurs that were targeted towards the, the basketball team. So we're still seeing major um, incidents of public anti-Semitism or public hatreds towards Jews in Israel that hasn't gone away, that continues to grow and fester in America. So that anti-Semitism piece, we can measure by the hundred days as well. The discomfort mm-hmm. and the rise of uh, security needs. I mean, there was a situation last week where synagogues were getting bomb threats again. Um, it's called swatting, where um, mass uh, communication goes out to synagogues. Like, oh, we put we planted a bomb in your synagogue, and you know it's going to blow up in any any minute. So those kind of things have escalated also.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting to think about the. The leap, I don't know if that's a fair term, but of I am um, very public and strong pro-palestinian slash anti-Israel sentiments on college campuses, but then moving to to high schools because at least in my mind, the those sentiments on college campuses were coming from. A, a place of students wanting to align themselves with what they see as liberal, um, right, and uh, causes, um, but also from administrations, and we saw this very clearly, as you talked about with the presidents of these uh, Ivy League universities, right, from the administration taking the viewpoint that they are deeply committed to protecting all forms of speech and right to protest. And in this case, to a fault, right? Protecting it so much so that even when it is endangering another group of students, they don't realize that there is a limit to how much one can say, but we have to protect free speech. But I, I think of the high school environment as very different because High schools don't have that sort of, I don't know, academic ivory tower, right? Everything has to be allowed. Atmosphere. High schools have lots of rules. High schools. It's not a democracy. There, there's a, there's a very clear hierarchy. The principal is in charge. There are things that it's okay and it's not okay. Um, there are, you know, there are dress codes and there are. I, you know, you can't walk around with a T-shirt that has profanity on it in, in a high school, whereas on a college campus, maybe someone would say, but that's my right to self-expression. We don't have that expectation in high schools. And so to see that also there, the the staff are not stepping in and realizing that there is a place for them to say there there is a limit to what kind of speech is and is not allowed. Right. All views are acceptable, but how we express them, there are rights and wrongs. And that that didn't happen in this high school in a way that allowed the girls to be, you know, violent or intimidating or whatever to the to the Jewish students. I feel like that's a really significant next step. It's a different kind of problem. It's coming from a different place that we we didn't know about really until now.
0: I think that your your touch on the the critical point of how the non Jewish world is viewing anti-Semitism and this kind of attack towards Jews they're not a, maybe they're not equipped to understand the level of hatred that is coming out of somebody's behavior. And we mm-hmm. saw so you see that in Congress, you see that in, in college campuses, you see that in municipal uh, city council meetings. That people are protecting that notion of free speech and free expression, that uh, they don't know when to step in.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think we have a responsibility to educate people around that, to be able to challenge institutions around. It's not acceptable to allow that behavior.
1: Yeah, I would. I would agree. I hope that we can find ways to empower. The grown-ups that are supposed to be there—the teachers, the coaches, the educators—to know how to to do both, right? To absolutely protect people's right to self-expression, but not at the expense of any other student's sense of safety and security and ability to play basketball together.
0: Right. I, going back to the presidents of the universities, how one defines intimidation and threats. They made that into, you know, context. It's pretty clear when somebody th- says something derogatory towards another person, that uh, that's a threat and intimidation and bullying, and that should not be allowed anywhere. Yeah. Well, on that note, I think we should call I'm it... I'm
1: glad it. we agree. We just have to convince <laughs> the rest of the world.
0: <laughs> I, I, I agree, Liz. I, I think this is a good <laughs> place for us to stop, and we'll, we'll resume uh, next week with some other uh, examples of how... We're both surviving during this time period.
1: Sounds good. I will look forward to speaking next week.
0: So, thank you all for listening. This has been Israel Rebound and uh, wishing you all a good week.